The investigation continues, my friends, as we continue to put the pieces of the puzzle together here in our narrative of what is going on out there. And I tell you, we are getting some remarkably interesting pieces here. This is almost like being an archaeologist. This is like being at Pompeii and you're trying to figure out, you know, after Vesuvius took out Pompeii with that volcano, you're looking at the data and you're trying to piece together how life was in the Roman Empire. And in many respects, you know, these disparate narratives that we get, little pieces here and there, it's not a dissimilar endeavor here. We are taking the evidence, often circumstantial, and trying to piece together what is going on. And I tell you, we have a new story here with the LME, which we have been following very closely here in the last few weeks, especially, but really over several months. We have been watching this evolving organization here. And here's the latest. LME targets Hong Kong as option for warehouse expansion. So remember we had the story a couple of weeks ago at the World Economic Forum where the CEO of the LME took a Reuters reporter aside and was suggesting that you know some metals from the steel complex, in other words, perhaps nickel, which is 10% of steel you know, on average, that some of these metals might start getting pricing out of China, raising some eyebrows over here. And now, to take it all one step further, now the LME is looking to open warehouses in China. And don't forget who owns the LME as far as our whole discussion here. You know, again, something we've mentioned here, which is Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing is the owner of the LME who bought it for a mere $2.2 billion in 2012. So isn't this interesting? And there's some very revealing information here. Let me look at the news story. There's also an older story I want to pick up from December, also referring to the pricing out of Shanghai. So here's the news story from January 30th. The London Metal Exchange is studying Hong Kong as a location to expand its global metal warehouse network. Five sources with knowledge of the matter said, hopeful success there might open the door to mainland China, its ultimate target. Now, don't forget, this was the same rationale or narrative that was being used on the sidelines of the World Economic Forum, that ultimately this is a way of making the LME a more profitable institution. However, I wonder to myself, is Matthew Chamberlain reading the news? Because everything I'm seeing is that the global economy is bifurcating and governments around the world, particularly Western governments, are doing everything they can to secure the supply chain. So what is Matthew Chamberlain doing, the CEO of the LME, basically saying, hey, we're going to start getting pricing out of China. Now we want to start storing the metal in China. At what point does the London Metal Exchange become the London Metal Exchange in name only? That is my question here. You know, is this securing the supply chain? I mean, that's my question here. Is this helping? And again, when you take a step back and you look at who owns it, well, actually, it's owned by a Hong Kong company. Now, let's continue with this article because it's actually quite revealing here. Registering warehouses in China the world's largest consumer of industrial metals, to store metal traded on the LME has been a strategic aim since Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing bought the LME in 2012 for $2.2 billion. So this is a strategic aim. Once the Chinese-based company, Hong Kong at the time, but now China, 
you know, some people still have this illusion that somehow Hong Kong is still kind of not China. It is. I thought that was very clear. Wasn't it in 2019 when that whole protest happened and there was basically a China takeover, right? So this is a strategic aim of Hong Kong exchange and clearing. You know, this 147-year-old crown jewel of the West and the global economy basically was sold for pennies in terms of what it represents symbolically. You know, this is the London Metal Exchange, the global leader in trading industrial metals. Now, let's continue here. In a presentation made to the LME's Warehouse Committee in December, seen by Reuters, the exchange said companies in the region had indicated interest in Hong Kong as a place to store industrial metals as an alternative to mainland China, as if by putting in Hong Kong, somehow it's more, you know, secure, is the theory here. And we have a quote here, scrolling a couple of paragraphs down from the LME. Quote, the LME actively engages with industry participants worldwide to ensure the LME warehouse network continues to provide maximum global connectivity for the metals community. So again, this is all under the guise of this is good for business, isn't it? But again, the pieces of this puzzle aren't fitting together as far as I'm concerned. Again, I wonder, like, is Matthew Chamberlain reading the news? And is anybody asking Matthew Chamberlain, like, hey, is this really what you should be doing? And again, maybe I'm out of left field here, and this actually doesn't matter, and I'm making hay out of something that really is irrelevant, but really taking a very kind of pragmatic view of reality. You know, that supposed free market of metals at the LME, if it moves to China, do you still have the same influence over that market and keeping it free that you had before? And people bring up this concern. We're going to look in a second here. No timeline for the proposal was given by any sources, but several hurdles stand in the way of listing Hong Kong as a good delivery location, a GDL, the sources said. Two sources said they were wary of investing in Hong Kong because of the risks associated with China's growing influence over foreign firms and individuals in the territory. I mean, this whole idea, again, that somehow Hong Kong is separate from China, again, is just a what I consider to be a very convenient narrative for the LME, which seems to be pursuing profits over security. And maybe I'm overstating their role. But to me, if you're the main clearinghouse for industrial metals in the world, you know, where that is stationed matters if some kind of war breaks out. Does it not? And again, feel free to leave a comment if you feel otherwise. So the three other sources said the idea was flawed due to the prohibitive costs of storage space in Hong Kong and the fact that its import of industrial metals such as copper and aluminum traded on the 147-year-old LME are insignificant. So they're basically saying it's not worth it to store it there because the cost to store in Hong Kong, of course, legendarily high real estate prices there, the cost to store the metals in Hong Kong are extremely high. And so, again, then you're going, I thought this was supposed to be good for business. And here's one of the unnamed sources being quoted, quote, the LME sees this as a potential gateway into China, but the political situation isn't healthy. People don't want to invest in Hong Kong. It is de facto China, end quote. So that is that story. And again, you can read the, all the details there on mining.com where there is the full story. So very interesting there. And just going back, I found this story on Google, December 19th, 2023, exclusive from Reuters, LME plans new metals contracts using Shanghai Futures Exchange prices. So this is interesting. So this came out before our World Economic Forum 
story that came out in January. And here it is in London and Beijing. The LME is planning to launch new metals contracts using prices from the Shanghai Futures Exchange. Three industry sources familiar with the matter said, further increasing China's influence on global metal markets. Collaboration between, at the time, 146-year-old LME and Shanghai Futures Exchange was mentioned briefly by the LME's chief executive, Matthew Chamberlain, in October at the annual LME Week Dinner without any detail. And you would think there would be all sorts of detail. Again, and look at who's saying this. Sources are saying, and then finally, just on the sidelines of the World Economic Forum, you know, no press release, just, oh yeah, we're thinking of taking metals from the steel complex. It all raises a lot of questions. And again, you take a step back and it's like, who owns the LME? Now, let's continue on this December story. Two years ago, the idea of China allowing an overseas exchange to use domestic prices would have been met with reluctance, interestingly. But since then, there has been a sea change in strategic direction at Chinese exchanges, the sources said. So before, they didn't want their domestic pricing you know, influenced by you know, external sources like the LME. But now there is a strategic sea change. Continuing, the change has come due to pressure on Chinese exchanges from the government to innovate and expand their influence to the rest of the world and China's aim of domestic players having more control over commodity prices. So it's all laid out clear there for you. This is Reuters, okay, saying China's aim is to have more control over commodity prices. And here... There is Matthew Chamberlain saying, hey, let's get pricing from China. Hey, let's open some warehouses in China so we can store some metal so we'll have more access. Maybe we'll make some more money. Now, interestingly, to finish here, what you're going to learn is I'm not the only person concerned about this. This is quite fascinating. Known as cross-listing, the process would involve new LME metal contracts settling against Shanghai Future Exchange prices, the sources said. The sources did not have a timeline for the launch. The LME, the world's oldest and largest forum for metals trading, would pay Shanghai Futures Exchange a license fee, and the new contracts would be cleared at the LME's clearinghouse, the sources said. And then we have a quote here from the LME in a response to a request for comment from Reuters, quote, During LME week this year, we announced that we intend to further deepen our collaboration with the Shanghai Futures Exchange in 2024, by working together in product innovation to better serve international participants in risk management and price discovery. British Financial Conduct Authority, which regulates the LME, declined to comment, and Shanghai Futures Exchange did not respond to requests for comments via email. It is not known which metals are involved in this initiative, but copper and aluminum are both high-volume contracts on both the Shanghai Futures Exchange and the LME, owned by the Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing. So. We got a clue at the World Economic Forum where Matthew Chamberlain said it was the steel metals complex, which seems like a way of saying nickel without saying nickel, interestingly. And so here, scrolling down just finally here, are a couple of quotes. Here's an industry source who says, quote, with cross-listing, the LME would have a contract that settles against the Shanghai Futures Exchange price for its members. LME will be able to grow its volumes and income, end quote. Continuing, quote, there are downsides. The LME would not have control. Chinese regulators have a lot of oversight over prices, and they do intervene frequently. What if the Shanghai Futures Exchange decided to suddenly withdraw the license or refuses to renew it, end quote? 
So you would think that alone would disqualify this as a deal, as again, you would think the London Metal Exchange was a, at least symbolically, a symbol of, frankly, the free market Western financial system. But I think the reality is, is it's no longer owned by the West. I think that's the takeaway here. And there is one other story that I want to mention here. And again, I'm trying to keep this as short as possible, but, you know, obliquely related, we might say, Pentagon plans AI-based program to estimate prices for critical minerals. This is Reuters via mining.com. So we're back to this pricing issue. The U.S. Department of Defense plans to develop a program to estimate prices and predict supplies of nickel, cobalt, and other critical minerals, a move aimed at boosting market transparency, but one that throws a new uncertain variable into global metals markets. So the Pentagon is already concerned that there is not enough transparency in pricing. And meanwhile, the London Metal Exchange is saying, hey, we're going to go start getting pricing from a market that is, quote, frequently, unquote, intervened in by Chinese authorities. So again, it's quite a puzzle here that we're putting together, isn't it? Finally, the program, which received little attention after it was announced on a Pentagon website in October, is part of Washington's broader efforts to jumpstart U.S. production of critical minerals used in weapons manufacturing and the energy transition. U.S. output lags market leader China partly because attempts to build new American mines can be heavily influenced by commodity price swings. Gervois Global, for example, announced last year it would suspend construction of an Idaho cobalt project due in part to low market prices, even while Chinese cobalt miners, financially backed by Beijing, said they would boost production of the battery metal in a bid for greater market share. It's the playbook. So, again... We could say, finally on this point, the LME is owned by Hong Kong exchanges and clearing. What they're doing, ultimately, it seems to me, is they're securing the Chinese supply chain, okay? And the question just remains is, where are the regulators? Because it is still, technically speaking, as far as I understand, regulated out of the UK. So we have a wonderful show here for you today. We have Global X Head of Research, Rohan Reddy, back on the show to discuss what's going on in the increasingly interesting uranium market, where I am hearing very dire supply-demand scenarios from, you know, experts in the business. And just a quick show note for those uranium people out there, Cameco this Thursday is doing their conference call, so that will be must-listen for those uranium investors, because, of course, that is one of the most informative views on the uranium market. So that is coming up on February 8th. I'll likely discuss it in the next show here. So we discuss uranium with Rohan Reddy. We also discuss what's going on in the very volatile nickel market here, again, with a glut being out there. And again, Chinese companies really in Indonesia helping oversupply the market with nickel, you know, taking a lot of Western mines offline. And so I asked Rohan Reddy about the nickel market and what he sees going on here. And also we discussed copper, you know, kind of a sleepy market right now, interestingly, and oil. So a fascinating interview. Coming up on our CEO spotlight, we have Neil Chaudhary from FM Global. It is the second part of our three-part FM Global series. This time we're discussing how the advent and the incorporation of renewable energy into mine sites, how that is adding kind of a new kinds of risk, you know, with these new technologies coming in, there are new things to consider as far as, you know, how things can go wrong 
as you bring in new infrastructure, Neil Chaudhary gives us more information on how to think about risk at mine sites in the context of using renewable energy at these mines. So fascinating CEO spotlight there and much more in the news section. I'm going to put everything I can as briefly as possible. There is too much to get through here today. A massive news week here. So welcome one and welcome all. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to FM Global's Neil Chaudhary for more information on risk at mine sites on this week's CEO Spotlight. Joining us today, I'm very pleased to welcome Neil Chaudhary, Operations Chief Engineer at FM Global Canada to the Northern Miner Podcast for this week's CEO Spotlight. Neil, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So tell us, what is FM Global and what are you doing? at FM Global is the Operations Chief Engineer. FM Global is a global property insurance company and also specialty insurance company. And we've been in business for nearly 200 years. And we're a mutual company that's owned by our policyholders. And a key differentiator we have is engineering research. So we use engineers to physically go to sites and assess the risk. And they create a report that has risk improvement recommendations for our clients so they can complete the recommendations and improve the risk and prevent losses. And also it's used by underwriting to determine premium. We ensure all sorts of different industries, mining, chemical, pulp and paper, much more. And my role at FM Global is an operations chief engineer. So I am a technical resource that supports the Canada operations of FM Global. So FM Global is a global company, so we have offices all over the world. So my territory is Canada and I support our clients, client service teams, and also the field and account engineers throughout Canada. Big part of my job is helping solve complex technical risk challenges that our clients are facing. And also I do my best to keep up with emerging technologies and risks, including renewables. So I work closely with our chief engineers group in research and work with them to understand the risks and implementing best protection schemes for some of these complex hazards. And also, you know, make sure that these are communicated to the engineers in my territory. It sounds very interesting. So then how is FM Global then involved in the mining industry? So we've been involved uh, in the mining industry for over 100 years. We insure over 300 mining sites uh, wide. So we have developed a you know, really close relationship with a lot of our longstanding mining clients. And we're also looking at expanding our mining book of business and trying to prospect more and more clients. So we work closely with in the mining industry. And yeah, we certainly enjoy working with our mining clients. There's a lot of emerging risks in the mining space that we're trying to stay on top of. And you know, we're looking to learn more and more and help our mining companies stay resilient and stay in business. Okay, excellent. And so there's been a lot of talk in the mining industry about the green transition and everybody shifting to renewable energy. What are you seeing from your perspective? Are you seeing movements with your clients towards renewable energy? Definitely. Uh, that's a great question. And yeah, mining is historically and, and currently a, a fairly huge uh, consumer of fossil fuels, and it is a larger generator of greenhouse gases. There's a stat out there where it's around 4 to 7% of global greenhouse gas production is tied to the mining industry. 
And there is a, a lot of pressure from regulators, environmental investment groups, even governments. And there's a big push towards becoming net zero by 2050. The Canadian government has part of their 2023 budget. A big focus was mining and working with mining companies and having tax credits and subsidies for more you know, lowering greenhouse gases and also incorporating renewables and also electrification. So that's sort of what I've seen in the mining space, especially amongst some of our clients. Interesting. And as there is this, you know, switch in technology and, you know, where the energy is coming from and FM Global is in risk management, are you seeing certain risks then associated with renewable energy? Yes, there's renewable uh, energy. There's also the electrification. And yes, you're right. There are definitely risks involved with these. I'll give you one example. So one of our clients they wanted to lower their greenhouse gases and they have haul trucks that use diesel. And the thing is, diesel is what contributes to a lot of these greenhouse gases. So what they did was they uh, developed an electric trolley assist system for the haul truck. So they put in overhead trolleys and the trucks use these trolleys to transmit product from the open pit to their processing areas. And they actually were able to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions significantly and the amount of diesel that's used. So something like 35 liters of diesel to around one liter of diesel. And then that transmitted to one kilogram of emissions to 85 that you'd get with diesel. So that's an example of a client that, that did that. So the good thing is they involved us really early on with this and we were able to talk to them about the risks. So some of the risks that we saw with that was there's more electrical infrastructure, right? So there's new transformers. So transformers have oftentimes have oil, so mineral oil for insulation purposes and all that. And that can be a fire hazard. So we educate clients about that and then, you know, make some suggestions on space separation with transformers from buildings between transformers. We have FMO approved oil, less flammable oil. So that's something that we, we, we consult with our clients. There's also control systems involved with some of these. So something to consider as well is cyber hazards. So there is potential for these systems to be exposed by hackers. So that's something that we consult with our clients as well. Yeah, that is becoming a larger and larger issue, the cybersecurity issue. I mean, it's been there for a while, but we're really starting yes. to see some real world examples there. You know, just back to the renewable energy then, are there certain, you know, forms of renewable energy that are more popular? than others like what, what kind of renewable energy are people using is it you know solar panels like what or batteries yeah. like what are people yeah. using yeah you get you get a little bit of everything but a lot of what we've seen is some more traditional forms of renewable energy like hydroelectric power uh, so a lot of our clients currently own their own hydroelectric dams so hydroelectric power so they they don't have as much reliance on grid and sometimes it's not even because of the remote locations there isn't really a close connection to the, the typical grid that you see. So oftentimes you'll see hydroelectric, but even like diesel powered generators, for example, right? So you see a lot of hydroelectric power there. You also see solar. Solar is becoming more and more popular. We have the solar panels, but the thing is like with solar and, and even uh, wind is a little bit more rare is they're cyclic. You need to have the sun, you need to have wind. So it's not always as available. So something that you're seeing to store some of this power is the lithium-ion batteries. So the lithium-ion batteries, you know, to deal with some of the uh, additional 
excess power, you would have lithium-ion batteries to store some of that power. And when you don't have the wind or the, or the sun, the, the stored power can be used to feed the facilities for power. So FM Global deals with risk management then. So do you simply identify then the risks or are you also helping? I suppose there's a certain amount of offering solutions as well. Yes. Rather than just saying, okay, you know, it might not be sunny. So, you know, this whole plan of the solar panels, you you might need a backup plan. You also offer the backup plan. What kind of solutions are you guys offering? Yeah. So as far as existing facilities, so we will go to do the risk assessments and then you know, we'll look at, uh, you know, the existing facilities and, and figure out what the hazards are, and then we'll make risk improvement recommendations. And then we also work closely with clients on new projects, right? So ideally, we want to get involved as early as possible to give us some time to really understand what the risks are. And then we also use our property loss prevention data sheets, which have risk improvement recommendations. And the data sheets are constantly being updated based on the new technologies. So we will understand the big thing for us is understand the process for us to understand the risk. We have to understand the process and then you know, we will you know, be able to educate our clients about the hazards and then provide the risk improvement solutions to address these hazards. For example, with solar, you know, big hazard with solar is hail um, because hail can cause damage to these panels, right? Uh, the force of the hail, uh, the size of the hail can result in physical damage to the panel. So we have guidance on choosing panels and we have hail maps as well, both in Australia and also the United States. And we're in the process of developing a worldwide hail map that can help specify the type of panels that you need. Brush fire, wildland fire is another risk with hail. So facility setting is really important in where the solar panels are in relation to the vegetation because you can have potential for radiant heat exposures and also ember tap exposures. So that's a big part there. So existing facilities and projects will be able to understand where some of the risks are and then be able to make the the recommendations. When it comes to hydro, for example, you know, there is a potential for flood exposures. So flood exposures to the hydro stations, depending on the, you know, the return frequency of flood and also the how the the, the facility is designed and sited. So that's something that we we look at really closely in our risk evaluations. We look at flood mapping, look at different hydrological studies to help understand the risk and you'll be able to provide solutions uh, such as uh, flood barriers, flood doors, little things like that. And then something that's becoming more and more prevalent uh, in the industry, as mentioned, is the lithium-ion battery energy storage systems. And a big hazard there is thermal runaway. So we've done a lot of research, you know, determining how to protect energy storage systems that are inside versus outside. So similar with transformers, you know, those needed a certain space separations from buildings. If it's inside of a building, sprinkler protection is something that we will recommend to limit the thermal runaway and, and corresponding fires to one unit. And fun fact, we have videos of these energy storage systems on fire on our FM Global YouTube page. So that's something that people can see. I kind of want to watch that myself. Uh, that, that sounds pretty interesting. So. Okay. And on that point then, just as we wrap up here then, so let's say I am a mining company and I want to, you know, kind of dig deeper here because it's quite interesting. I mean, you guys deal with risk management and it's kind of all the things that you might not think about, right? So 
let's say I've been kind of interested here. Like, so where would I go to get more information on what I'm dealing with as a mining company? FMGlobal.com has tons of resources. There's some industry-specific information specific to mining companies. And our annual report also has some really good success stories of some of the partnerships that we've had with mining companies. Also, you know, our YouTube page has really good videos, as I mentioned. We also have our FM Global Property Loss Prevention data sheets, which are free of charge, and they can be accessed at fmglobaldatasheets.com. There's also our approval guide. So our approval guide is approvalguide.com. So that has FM approved products. So FM approved products is very similar to, you know, underrated laboratories, Canadian Standards Association, CSA. So we do uh, testing and certification of products and we give an FM Global diamond. So we approve products such as uh, sprinklers, sprinkler piping, FM approved less flammable transformer fluids, roofing materials, uh, uh, flood barriers, uh, things like that. So that's something that clients can use. And these resources are real charts. And for our clients, the field engineers and account engineers and account managers are excellent resources that can work with clients on new and existing facilities and projects. Neil Chaudhary, Operations Chief Engineer at FM Global Canada. Thank you for joining us on this week's CEO Spotlight. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you once again to Neil Chaudhary and also to FM Global for sponsoring this week's episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. Turning to the website, a pretty interesting story, again, that we've been following for years here. Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos-backed, Kobold says Zambia copper find largest in a century. And of course, they're referring to largest in a century in Zambia. This is Cecilia Jamazmi at mining.com. Kobold Metals, backed by a coalition of billionaires, including Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, said on Monday its Mingoba asset in Zambia is the country's largest copper deposit in a century. And it plans to fast track its development. The California-based startup has been drilling at its Zambian permit for a little over a year. During this time, Cobalt President Josh Goldman said they have confirmed the quote-unquote huge size of the deposit. Mingoba is shaping up to be, quote, extraordinary, end quote, he said. Adding the potential of the discovery compares to that of the Kamoa Kukula mine owned by Ivanhoe Mines and China Zijin Mining. This operation, located just across the border in the Democratic Republic of Congo, produced almost 400,000 tons of copper last year. So interesting, just across the border there is Kamoa Kakula. For all of the AI and big technology, I thought to myself, is this just simple closology, as they like to call it in the mining industry, finding a deposit that is near another deposit, it is close, therefore it is closology, probably my favorite word in mining. Let's continue here. Quote, the story with Mingoba is that it's like Kakula, in both the size and the grade, end quote, Goldman told Bloomberg at the Indaba Mining Conference in South Africa, quote, it's going to be one of the highest grade large underground mines, end quote. Kobold bought the project in 2022 via joint venture with its existing owners, Australian private equity firm EMR Capital, and Zambia's state-owned mining investment vehicle ZCCM-IH. Kobold plans to have the $2 billion underground copper mine in Zambia built within the decade, with first production in the early 2030s, but needs to update the resource estimate and complete feasibility studies before it makes a decision to go ahead. Goldman is not worrying about securing capital. 
Quote, the issue globally is not a lack of availability of capital, it is a lack of availability of high-quality projects, and where there are returns, there is capital. For a great project, there will be capital, end quote. If built, the Mingoba project would align with the vision of Zambia's president, Hakaindi Hichilema, to increase the nation's copper production to 3 million tons by 2032 to help the country reduce its debt burden. And finally here, the company is not just focused on copper, but rather all minerals and metals considered critical for the energy transition. The startup now has about a dozen exploration properties in place, including Zambia, Namibia, DRC, Quebec, Saskatchewan, Ontario, and Western Australia, which have resulted in joint ventures with BHP and with Blue Jay Mining to explore for minerals in Greenland. It also has exploration activities underway in South Korea and the United States, and in December, it launched a four-continent search for lithium deposits. Using artificial intelligence, Kobold aims to create a Google Maps of the Earth's crust with a special focus on finding copper, cobalt, nickel, and lithium deposits. You know, it's so interesting. You look at those metals like copper, as we're going to hear with Rohan Reddy, is holding firm here despite lower demand. But when you look at cobalt, nickel, and lithium, these are three washed out markets right now, interestingly. It collects and analyzes multiple streams of data from old drilling results to satellite imagery to better understand where new deposits might be found. Algorithms applied to the data collected determine the geological patterns that indicate a potential deposit of cobalt, which occurs naturally alongside nickel and copper. So, Again, it's kind of looking like a little more closeology than AI, but that is purely editorial over here. Let's continue on here. Zambia to start trading its own copper, competing with Glencore. Very interesting story. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. Zambia plans to directly buy and sell a portion of the copper produced in the southern African nation, competing with trading giants including Mercuria Energy Group and Glencore. And we have a quote from Jito Kayumba, President Hakaindi Hichilema's senior economic advisor, who said in an interview on Monday, quote, we obviously want to do it in a way that's fair, that's commercially suitable for the mining companies, to say that we can come as a commercial player to compete with the other commodities traders to make financing available for the mines for us to have a fair share of the resource. And the article continues here, it could have legislation ready in the next three to six months, he said, referring to Kayumba adding that the government may opt to receive physical metals instead of royalties from some mines. Very smart move, if you ask me, especially if you are trying to create a trading house to sell your own metal. Here, it just automatically gets supplied by your royalties directly. So very interesting. And just finally here, the government will hire the necessary expertise to start trading its copper and shouldn't struggle to compete as it has direct access to the resources, according to Kayumba. The move will open a window into the financial world of commodity trading and help the government see how much profit from its copper remains abroad, some of it in countries like Switzerland, where commodity traders, including Glencore, are based. Quote, it gives us transparency. We'll see, ah, that's what happened in Switzerland. <laughs> so, uh, good for Zambia. And look at this, final line of the article. The European country, in other words, Switzerland, accounts for about 46% of Zambian export earnings, according to the official data. A wise move from Zambia there. Let's continue. Guinea, of course, in West Africa, approves joint development deal for Simandu Iron Ore Project. This is that major a mountain of iron ore, as far as I understand. This is Reuters via mining.com. 
Lawyers in Guinea approved on Saturday a joint development deal for its giant Samandu iron ore project involving the junta-led government, Rio Tinto, and winning consortium Samandu. Samandu, set to be the world's largest and highest grade new iron ore mine, has been the subject of prolonged negotiations due to its complex ownership structure, delays caused by legal wrangling, Guinea's political upheaval, and difficulties around construction. Rio Tinto owns two of four Samandu's mining blocks as part of its Simfer joint venture with China's Chalco Iron Ore Holdings and the government of Guinea. Rio Tinto holds a 53% stake while CIOH holds the rest. And look at this, the two other mining blocks are being developed by winning consortium Samandu, made up of Singapore-based winning international group Weicheo Aluminum, part of China Honchou Group and United Mining Suppliers. So. China having a pretty firm grip on that project there. It's a joint venture with Rio Tinto in two of the four mining blocks and looking like they have a good share of the other two. Very interesting there. And there was talk earlier in the week that Australia's Linus, which is a rare earth producer and processor, was in talks with MP Materials, which is out of the US, to make a larger company. That has been nixed. According to this Reuters story, Linus Rare Earths quits tie-up talks with MP Materials. So as soon as that story got out, it does make you wonder if an email went out to maybe from government saying, hey, you know, if you're Australia, like, hey, what are you doing? We don't want to lose our Rare Earths. And if you're the US, we don't want to lose our Rare Earths either. Let's take a closer look here. Australia's Linus Rare Earths said on Monday, confidential talks have ended with US-based MP Materials for a possible merger that industry sources said would have been difficult for the sides to agree on a value. Linus is the world's biggest producer of rare earths outside of China, and MP is the biggest in the United States. Talks come as Western nations seek to diversify supply chains for the magnetic metals that are used in everything from wind turbines to electric vehicles to missiles. And we have a quote here from Linus, quote, quote, Linus confirms it has held confidential discussions with MP Materials Corporation, Regarding a potential transaction, however, these discussions are not ongoing. Interesting, a comma splice in the press release of such a massive company. Amazing. Let's continue here. Linus has been constructing a processing plant in Western Australia's Kalgoorlie to add to its refining operations in Malaysia and the U.S., where it is building processing facilities in Texas, supported by the Department of Defense. MP processes rock that it extracts from its Mountain Pass mine in California, of course, Mollycorp, which went out of business, was trying to bring that back to life. And so Mountain Pass is really back in business, it looks like. It has been struggling to crack the difficult technology to refine its own materials for some time. China in December banned the export of technology to make rare earth magnets, adding it to a ban already in place on technology to extract and separate the critical minerals. A little section at the end here uh, with some speculation here. One source with direct knowledge of the proposal said that general contours of a deal would have involved Linus delisting in Australia and MP keeping its New York Stock Exchange listing and that any deal was aimed for the first quarter. Yeah, I mean, it's such a sensitive topic right now. One imagines if you're an Australian politician, you're just saying like, no way, that's not happening. I assume that's what happened. So very interesting story there. Let's continue. Just a headline here. Vietnam rare earths output drops as China's grows, U.S. says. This is Reuters. Take a quick look here. The U.S. Geological Agency has sharply revised down estimates on Vietnam's rare earths output and expects a further drop despite its rich resource base, according to an annual report 
which showed a rise in dominant producer China's output. Another interesting story, hedge funds ramp up copper bets as supply shocks reverberate. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. And just a couple of lines here. A number of hedge fund managers are betting that copper stocks are significantly undervalued as they position themselves for gains this year. And we have a quote from Todd Warren, a portfolio manager at Tribeca. Quote, we see a very strong trade in the foreseeable future, primarily because of the supply challenge. End quote. And just one more paragraph here. Any lingering expectations of surplus supply have now, quote unquote, evaporated and have been replaced with the prospect of a significant deficit. And this is according to Matthew Langsford of Terra Capital. The development underscores, quote, the fragility of supply in markets where there has been very little capex for new projects, end quote. So very interesting. The story that won't go away, the Copper Bowl story and you know, as time passes, the fundamentals here continue to look attractive. And finally, just a few more headlines here. Japan adds uranium to list of critical minerals. Again, you're starting to see a highlighting of uranium right now. You know, I'm hearing some pretty dire supply demand forecasts in the next like three to four years with uranium that there simply will not be enough. So those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, let's take a quick look at the bond market. So taking a look at the U.S. 10-year bond, it is yielding 4.15%. Again, staying above 4% and up a tenth of a percent. The U.K. 10-year gilt is back above 4% at 4.01%. That is 0.14% higher than last week. And Italy's 10-year bond is yielding 3.88%. That is 0.12% higher than last week. So Italy right now has cheaper borrowing costs than the US and the UK by a not insignificant margin, which is quite interesting. Turning to precious metals, gold is trading at $2,040.10 per ounce. That's $3 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $23.39 per ounce. That is 91 cents higher than last week. Platinum is trading at $897.06 per ounce. That is $28 lower than last week. And palladium is trading at $946.47 per ounce. That is $28 lower than last week. So gold and silver edge slightly higher while platinum and palladium edge lower. And again, you're looking at about a $50 disparity there between platinum and palladium. So remaining fairly close in value, turning to our industrial metals. Copper is trading at $3.77 per pound. That is 10 cents lower than last week. Iron ore is trading at $128.94 per metric ton. That is $7 lower than last week. Aluminum is also lower at $1 per pound. That is 2 cents lower than last week. Lead is also lower at 97 cents per pound. That is 2 cents lower than last week. Nickel is at $7.25 per pound. That is 25 cents lower than last week but not as low as two weeks ago when it was at $7.17 per pound. Tin is at $11.59 per pound. That is 51 cents lower than last week, so a bit of a drop in tin. Cobalt is unchanged at $13.22 per pound. Lithium is at $13.27 per kilogram. That is 3 cents lower than last week. 
and tied with two weeks ago at its all-time low of the last six months since we started tracking it here, bouncing along the bottom here with lithium, and uranium is trading at $100 even per pound. That is $6 lower than last week, and zinc is also lower at $1.10 per pound. That is $0.06 cents lower than last week, so a not insignificant drop there in zinc. So all to say, gold and silver higher, and all the other metals edge lower. And those are your metal prices. Coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome Rohan Reddy back to the show, head of research at Global X ETFs. We discuss the larger macro factors impacting commodities, including China and the Red Sea, and drill a little deeper on uranium, a very interesting market right now, nickel, copper, and oil. So a fascinating discussion with a very knowledgeable person. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Joining us today, I'm very pleased to welcome back to the show, Rohan Reddy, Director of Research at Global X ETFs. Rohan, welcome back. Adrian, thanks for having me on again. Great to be back. Well, it's an absolute pleasure considering all of the interesting facets of the commodities markets these days. We've discussed many of them, such as uranium, you know, nickel's becoming an issue. We've discussed copper and the oil market. So I want to discuss all of these things. But as we start out here, what is your general big picture view of the commodities markets and the metals markets, I suppose, specifically is where I'm going with that. Like, what is your sense of the commodities metals complex as we look out in the big picture? Yeah, it's a very interesting time in the commodities market. Uh, we've spoken in the past about where we might be sitting in the cycle, and I still do believe that it is relatively late cycle for most of these commodities. As you've seen typically in past history, when we reach the end of a general economic cycle, that's also when a lot of these commodities, specifically like base metal commodities, tend to perform the best, just because the economy might be reaching that point of overheating or something along those lines. And I think you've seen generally uh, commodities, they've moved in similar directions. Some that I'm sure we'll discuss today have more attractive points today than maybe others do. But I think specifically on metals, for example, a lot of the rhetoric right now is being driven by China. So you've seen, for example, uh, copper, some of the other base metals out there. There's been some news out of China lately and also just economic data that's been coming out from a lagging perspective that shows that the economy is facing issues. We've seen to start the year 2024, the Chinese equity markets have been on a downturn and it's run a bit in contrast to what we've seen from other more developed markets. But I do think if you start to see, for example, the regulations and uh, new market changes that some of the uh, regulators in Beijing are looking to implement, some of this is to stem some of that downturn. So I do think between that and then also just generally supply demand dynamics, most markets that we cover tend to be in a little bit of a deficit right now, partially because there's a little bit of a mining hangover from production, but also some delays that have occurred. So I think there is this push and pull of how much can demand start to actually drive these markets. But at the same time, understanding that fundamentally, a lot of these markets are actually in a deficit. And so that's going to help balance a lot of commodities. Fascinating. So it's almost as if if we were to perhaps oversimplify a little bit and overgeneralize for the sake of argument, it's almost like we're seeing 
simultaneously a decline in supply and demand. Yes, I think that is the perfect way to put it, because if you think about like right now, just general global demand, you're seeing issues with geopolitics, a few wars that are ongoing simultaneously, and then also major economies such as China facing issues within their economies. So obviously that's putting a little bit of pressure on demand. And at the same time, supply for various reasons, I think you've seen some investors start to tell some of these public companies that they're a little bit more hesitant about the pricing outlook and also just generally primary market production. Uh, there's been a belief that maybe some of these companies want to scale back on that. And then also there's some operational issues, which are more one-off with certain companies. So you put all this together, it does create a little bit of uh, push and pull from both sides of the equation, which is why you haven't seen major swings up or down, at least with generally most commodities. Very interesting. So if we drill down a little bit, then we've discussed the uranium sector a fair amount on this show from early on, before we saw many of the big moves we've seen, you were discussing the impressive supply demand fundamentals. In a sense, with uranium, thinking specifically, it's a slightly different situation in the sense that I assume with nuclear power, if anything, more nuclear power plants are coming online. Meanwhile, we're getting stories of restriction in supply, you know, because Prom, again, we heard maybe last week. I think if I remember correctly, Cameco had some issues at Cigar Lake that maybe aren't totally ironed out. So talk to us a little bit about the uranium market, because it seems, again, if you saw COP28, it seems like the politicians are embracing uranium. And meanwhile, we're starting to see issues with supply. And last I checked, we we're above $100 a pound. What's going on in the uranium market from your perspective? From our perspective, this is probably the most interesting commodity out there for investors to consider. We spoke at the top about generally maybe commodities facing some downturn in demand and then also a supply deficit too. The opposite actually exists uh, in the uranium market. You know, you're seeing projections for very strong demand for reasons that you discussed, just a need for consistent, reliable power, uh, which certain commodities may or may not be able to offer, for example, like wind and solar, just not at the same reliability level. And also politically, there's a lot more buy-in these days for nuclear power, especially in light of issues like the Russia-Ukraine war and the fact that Europe relied so heavily on uh, Russian imported natural gas. And so I think you're seeing a lot of these factors sway towards using nuclear power and uranium, which is the primary fuel input into that. And at the same time, on the supply side, there just is not enough supply right now. We kind of have known for the last couple of years that this was going to be a market that was going to be in a deficit for the foreseeable future. I think what caught a lot of us by surprise is uh, I had been of the opinion that uranium prices were going to hit $90, $100 a pound. I didn't think it was going to happen this quickly. And part of it is we've seen some new news, for example, Kazatomprom, which is facing some production issues. And then you also mentioned some of the legacy issues out of Cameco and a couple of their major mines. So because it's a very top-heavy market, if you think about, for example, Canada, Kazakhstan, Australia, three of the biggest producers of uranium in the world, and then also the Sprott Physical Trust, which holds a lot of the actual spot uranium these days, that's just a lot of physical pounds in the market that's not available for some of these utility companies to actually contract that in the moment. So they're facing a bit of an issue right now where there's this 
demand pull forward where they need to recontract and basically drive up prices. And it's happening at a time when there just isn't a ton of primary market supply uh, in this uh, uranium market. So I do think that even though there has been a big rally already, I do think it's a really good place to be at least for 2024 and likely into 2025, because if we start to see more of this shift towards cleaner energy, more reliable energy, and just a need for a move away from like traditional fossil fuels, if you think about it, like uranium and nuclear power fits solely into solving all of those objectives. So I actually not making any price projections here, but I actually think there is a decent room to run for uranium. Wild. And you mentioned the Sprott physical trust there. When it first launched, I thought to myself that maybe I think it launched in Canada, if I'm not mistaken. And I kind of felt like maybe they had somehow, you know, where the regulators didn't quite understand what was going on or maybe were slow to understand and just thought, oh, this is just another commodity. Like, how significant is this Sprott physical trust? And in a sense, like, is it artificially you know, raising the price of uranium? Or is that oversimplifying? And really, this is just market dynamics. And really, it's not impacting the price. Like, what is your sense of the impact of the Sprott Physical Trust on the uranium market? Well, I think it's important for two reasons. The first is structural for the market itself. And the second is for actually like creating a market where there basically are spot prices, which are somewhat related. So the first is, you know, there really isn't much of a uranium futures market, unlike most commodities out there. So one of the pushbacks from a lot of more established institutional investors in the past that we've heard, at least, is it's not really as defined of a market, very small, not a ton of buy-in. So is this a niche investment to make? I do think what Sprott was able to do with this physical trust was essentially add a little bit more credibility into this space by effectively creating a spot market. Because even though this is through like a grantor trust, not necessarily, you know, traditional futures, it essentially is a barometer for what investors are assessing as the real time spot pricing in the market. So I do think that's the first reason why it's important. But second, it's not artificially driving prices up because if you think about it, investor dollars are going to move into one form of uranium investments, right? Like it's going to be either the equities, it's going to be uh, some sort of physical investment like a hedge fund would do, or it might be through like a trust like this or some other form like an ETF, for example, just seeing a ton of fund flows recently. So it's competing for the same investor dollars. It's just a matter of where that's exactly going. I think the interesting thing about what's happened with the Sprott Physical Trust recently is at first when this market uh, opened through the Physical Trust, you saw a ton of investors pile in. The trust started taking in a ton of pounds itself and, you know, immediately it skyrocketed to like 60 million pounds, which is around like a third or so of like annual demand, I would say. So definitely a meaningful amount. You've seen lately, there's been a leveling out of growth of that trust. But I think at least in the beginning, and certainly even now, it's adding a level of both structural integrity into the market, and also giving investors another route to be able to price what uranium spot prices should be. Yeah, it's such an interesting question for me, because I sort of think, you know, I put on my politician's hat, and I think, do we really need retail to be investing in uranium and is it affecting the price? So I just sort of wonder that to myself, but very interesting. And, and just quickly here, I don't want to dwell too long on uranium because I want to get to these other commodities, but just in terms of France, you know, I look at France and to me, it seems to be undergoing kind of a, weirdly a similar situation to Germany 
in the sense that their cheap energy, you know, Germany, of course, used to get natural gas, you know, Nord Stream 1 from Russia. Weirdly, it seems like France, you know, they no longer have Niger there. And even if they did have Niger as a source for uranium, how much more are they paying now? I mean, their costs in electricity must have tripled, one assumes, uh, depending on how many stockpiles they have. Do you have any thoughts on France? I think France is emblematic of just generally what's been occurring in Europe and I think why you've started to see additional buy-in back into nuclear power. So even though they have you know, more of a direct relationship to the Niger situation, which was a bit of the talk of the town in the uranium market for a short period there. What we've seen is I think a lot of these European countries are starting to just come back into the nuclear power markets, because as you said, like when you don't really have a ton of reliable sources of power and you start to rely on other things like renewables, like solar and wind, and then you also have legacy fossil fuels and just electricity prices start to boom off of that, that's going to put a lot of pressure on retail investors and just consumers' utility pricing, which we haven't seen that wage growth has necessarily kept pace with that. And so that's going to put a, a ton of pressure just on the consumer, but also politically. And so I think the more that a lot of these countries and, you know, we're talking about France in particular, but it's also the situation with some of these other Western European countries. How can they get very reliable sources of power so that you don't put pressures on consumers where prices are going to skyrocket or gyrate a ton and they actually are able to plan out what utility prices are going to be are going to look like more for the foreseeable future? So turning over to nickel, then. I'm sure you've seen all the headlines. You know, it was quite the barrage of headlines there a couple of weeks ago where it seemed like left, right and center nickel mines were announcing that they were going on maintenance or, you know, shutting down as a result of a crash in nickel prices in the last year. I think Bloomberg was saying in the neighborhood of 40 percent even larger when we go back to the highs of February 2022. What is your sense of the nickel market here? In a sense, how bad is it? What are your thoughts on this story? Yeah, we were discussing at the top about how a lot of these markets are not necessarily oversupplied right now. I think the one exception is probably nickel right now. Indonesia has more of an outsized influence on this market than other countries do. Uh, global reserves are somewhere around like 22% sit in Indonesia. So it definitely makes up a lot of the way that the production within this market goes. And so you mentioned that some of these mines were also closing. The problem is rising Indonesian uh, supply was an issue for a while. And so part of it was, if you think about just how nickel is actually being used from more of the cyclical reasons with uh, factories and manufacturing and all of that, a lot of countries, for example, like China, which are facing issues right now. So demand has been uh, put at pressure. But at the same time, there was a period there when Indonesian supply was also rising. I do think closing a lot of these mines is also going to be a positive, at least in the very short term, and at least helping to stem the downturn in these markets. But this has been pretty painful to be in, I would say. I do think if you look going forward, though, we do think that one advantage is if you start to see, for example, increasing bets that the Fed could start to cut interest rates, which has shifted. And that's been, I think, part of the reason why the slump has been extended. That could just generally improve sentiment for risk assets like nickel and be able to make further investment in some of those areas. So 
I do think we're going to start to see a bottoming in that market soon, but at least in the very short term, even with some of the changes to the mining situation, if you start to see more technical outflows too and changes towards uh, the way that some of these investors are positioning in the nickel markets, I do think at least in the short term, there could be continue to be a little bit more pain when factoring in both that and also the sentiment around China. Right. And there's the whole issue, of course, so electric vehicles, too, which sound like they're not the boon that they were expected to be. Maybe they're staying on the lot. How much of a factor do you think uh, EVs are in the nickel situation? Yeah, so there definitely has been a change in the EV market. I mean, you started to see because there was this huge reliance at points on cobalt and then on nickel and then, for example, in some cases with multitudes of manganese. So I do think what a lot of these EV companies are trying to do is diversify away from specific sources of reliance on the way that these batteries are used to actually create the electric vehicles. Obviously, we all know like lithium is a huge part of the electric vehicle story and, you know, one of the main inputs that goes into uh, the batteries for electric vehicles. Nickel is also a, a real commodity that's needed to actually go into some of these batteries. I do think uh, to kind of summarize it, what's been going on is you've seen maybe a little bit of nickel, the baby getting thrown out with the bathwater here, just because we've started to see, for example, like lithium is very washed out at this point. Sentiment around lithium is quite low. Part of it is because electric vehicle sales have been, they've been growing, but like not to the same extent that were projected initially. So I do think this is contributing, but it's more so to me that this is a very oversupplied market and also the sentiment around China. Turning then over to copper, which seems to fit more into your earlier story about China, we don't hear a ton about copper right now. And so what is your assessment of the copper market yeah, so I think uh, what we've seen with the copper market, which has been pretty interesting, is it sits squarely to me in that situation where you're seeing demand is not necessarily growing a ton, but it's also happening simultaneously at a time when supply in the market is not necessarily overwhelming the situation and also inventories are quite low. So I do think that's led to this range bound situation where you're seeing copper prices not really skyrocket or uh, fall down a ton. And so when we look at copper, I think the real thing that is needed to create like more of a pricing jolt from here is going to be if we start to see increases in Chinese demand or like factory data improves, because as the saying goes, as China goes, so does copper, right? And right now, China hasn't really been going. And so that's been affecting uh, the copper markets right now. So if we start to see more of a, a China boom, then you could start to see prices rise. I'm not quite as optimistic on that, which is why copper is maybe not one of our top picks, at least tactically in this moment. And at the same time, you know, eventually, because of the way that inventories are, they're quite low. Eventually, you would think that they're going to start to rise materially from here. So I do think there's a setup where things could be a little bit challenging. The positive side, though, is, uh, you know, we were talking about electric vehicles a little bit with uh, nickel. But one thing about copper is it does actually have just a long term secular benefit from the electric vehicle market. So copper is used more so in electric vehicles and it is in traditional internal combustion engine vehicles. So even though we are seeing electric vehicle uh, sales, at least in growth, starting to decline in the short term, partially because of consumer strength and all of that and just changes in subsidies and certain markets, 
what uh, we do believe is going to be at least a, a positive and balancing demand in the short term is going to be that there's going to be copper needed for some of these electric vehicles. So I don't think it's necessarily a dire situation for the copper markets by any means. I think it's going to be more one of those where you're going to see range bound action in spot copper prices until one of those factors materially changes. Right. And like you were saying earlier, it's like if the Fed starts easing again and if the economy starts running hotter again, that could potentially, you know, put a fire under the copper market a little bit. Yes, exactly. And I think also by extension, if the Fed, this has been what's leading to some of the price actions lately in some of these commodity markets and obviously copper more specifically because it's a risk asset, but Commodities as a whole are facing some downstream effects from just the lack of belief that the Fed is going to cut interest rates in the short term. There was a greater pricing in the futures market in prior months that we were going to see more aggressive rate cuts by, say, March or May. It seems that at least first half beliefs for interest rate cuts have dimmed. And also, you know, Jerome Powell, for example, was on 60 Minutes the other day, and he seemed to reiterate a similar belief. So I do think this macro sort of like central bank tailwind that we were expecting has now been priced out of some of these markets. So if we start to see a shift in that, either you know more weakening economic data or deeper issues in China that affect the U.S. markets, that's where you could start to see uh, more of you know an effect in terms of interest rates maybe getting cut at a faster pace than they're priced in right now. And by extension, you might see more of a benefit to the copper markets. And to wrap up here on oil, you've generally have a pretty good understanding of what's happening in the oil market. Again, it kind of feels a little bit range bound here and maybe a touch on the boring side, but what's your outlook for oil and what do you see as kind of the main factors driving things right now? Yeah, I would say the unexpected is driving things. What I mean by that is lately prices have been moving downwards over the last couple of weeks, partially because of this Houthi issue that's happening in Yemen and also just the implications for broader instability. So really the like canary in the coal mine for the oil markets right now is if the Middle East and what, what's going on in the Middle East draws out some of these third party actors and major actors in the region into a broader Middle East war, just because of obviously the implications that could have on oil production and just the broader energy market. So that might affect a number of different OPEC nations. So I'm not necessarily pricing and projecting any of that in right now, but if you look at the way that prices have moved, so right now uh, WTI spot pricing is around $72. Uh, a couple weeks ago, for example, it peaked out around like $78. So that not necessarily a huge move, but enough where I think the market is taking more of a cautious approach to what could happen, which is understandable in light of uh, the demand dynamics that we have been discussing before about maybe uh, peaking levels of demand. So I wouldn't necessarily expect that prices are going to fall much more from here because, again, if there is, for example, like, you know, a Middle East situation where you start to see declining production, eventually that's going to cause more of a, a supply push upwards, right? And even though U.S. production has been rising recently, U.S. production actually exceeded 13 million barrels and, you know, reached levels of all-time highs it's not going to be necessarily enough to make up for any uh, Middle East shortfall. So I do think this is another instance where you could see range-bound markets because of 
not necessarily rapidly increasing demand, but at the same time, supply that's not keeping pace. Okay, excellent. So as we finish here, then, do you have a general outlook then for commodities? Like, you know, you're talking about Chinese demand. Of course, every metal has its own story, of course. But just overall, do you have an outlook, let's say, on where this market is going in 2024? The phrase I would use for commodities as a whole is cautiously optimistic. I think we do believe that commodities are a decent place to be in 2024, even though it doesn't feel like the demand story is going to drive things much and inflation is maybe starting to level out from you know what we saw back in 2021, 22, some of those really high levels uh, in the wake of uh, some of the COVID-19 policies and very low interest rates. We do think that there is enough here to be able to warrant allocating a little bit more towards commodities right now. It's not necessarily maybe the levels, you know, when we saw prices skyrocket, but we do think that overall it's a nice place for investors to park capital in and experience some growth in. So there's obviously certain commodities that have better dynamics than others, but we are getting a little bit more optimistic about this narrative of a soft landing being executed by the Fed. And if that does actually get executed appropriately and without any kind of you know major downturn that comes with that, we do think that commodities could be one of the clear beneficiaries of that because risk assets right now, it feels like between fund flows uh, and mutual funds and ETFs, and then also just sentiment that we're hearing from clients, there definitely is a bit of a discount being placed on some of these assets because of just a lack of belief maybe that the Fed can engineer a soft landing and we might actually see a downturn. So even though most markets and equity markets as a whole have been performing quite well over the last couple of years, it doesn't necessarily feel that way when you talk to clients and investors. So I do think the next leg of growth from here is if investors get a lot more confident in the macro story, which right now feels more mixed. But I do think that by, for example, the middle of this year, we're going to get more clarity on it. Rowan Reddy, Director of Research at Global X ETFs, thank you for joining us and sharing your insights on the Northern Miner podcast. Thanks again for having me, Adrian. Once again, to Rohan Reddy for appearing on this week's show, as well as a big thank you to FM Global for sponsoring this week's episode. We had part two of their three-part series on risk management, and you can learn more about it at fmglobal.com. And thank you, dear listener, for tuning in once again. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care. <laughs>